Welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. Today, I'm talking to Manuel Paez, uh, the author of Team Topologies, um, a book about organizing business and uh, technology teams for fast flow. Uh, Manuel is recognized as a DevOps thought leader. Um, he is an independent IT consultant and trainer. He focuses on team interactions, liberal practices, and accelerating flow. He is also a LinkedIn instructor uh, on continuous delivery. He was for a long time the uh, DevOps lead for InfoQ and a QCon London program committee member. Welcome, Manuel. Thank you so much, Sven. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Did I forget to mention anything about you? Uh, probably, but I also forget because <laughs> too many things. But um, yes, I think you you got the main the main ideas. I've been a DevOps uh, advocate, if you like, for a long time, and I did a lot of work with uh, at InfoQ and um, consulting as well. And now, since the book Team Topologies came out, about well, it's actually. Today that we're recording is the two-year anniversary that the book was published. Ah, okay, and okay. Yeah. So I do most of most of my works around training, consulting, and um, giving my opinions about team organizations, team structures, interactions, etc. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when I heard about the book, uh, yeah, almost two years ago, I was more like. Uh, Uh, yeah, it's probably interesting. Uh, if Manuel writes it, I must read it, but I just didn't read it for a long time. Uh, and now I read it and I thought, why hasn't the book written like 15 years before? Because, um, yeah, almost 15 years ago, uh, Werner Vogels, so the CTO of Amazon, he, he gave an interview now famous at ACMQ, how, uh, Amazon is developing software and he was talking about those two pizza teams and you build it, you run it and all those kind of things. And, um, yeah, I think most of the companies started adopting those ideas maybe a couple of years later, but, uh, you know, ever since I adopted uh, this kind of work, I'm running into, into problems. Yeah. So, and, uh, and also the teams I'm working with. And you basically, you gave this, those problems a nice, uh, a, let's say vocabulary. And, um, yeah, the, the first thing you're mentioning in the, in, in the book, if, you know, what, what's, what's the challenge if you form such teams is cognitive load. So can, can you elaborate what, what's the problem of cognitive load in those self-organizing two pizza teams? Sure. So yeah, that, that famous interview was, was, I think helpful to kind of get people thinking about, uh, what, what's the right size of teams and, and that promotes, um, faster flow and, and more autonomy, et cetera. And also 15 years ago is more or less when agile started to gain a bit more traction. And, um, so it, there, there's, I think like you're saying, there was a kind of a, a gap there. Um, so one of the, the praise we got for the book from Jeff Susness, what well, he said, this is the, the, um, the book that does the homework for DevOps around how to organize teams <laughs> and not just obviously the cultural aspects and the practices, all that is, is super important, but there's also this, this part. 
Um, and so going back to what, what um, Werner Vogel said about the two pizza team, um, what we've done in the book is basically there is some, some truth to that. Uh, but it's sort of intuitive, right? People think, oh, yeah, that sort of makes sense. Obviously, there are the jokes about how big is the pizza, how hungry are the people. But, you know, we're talking about um, seven, eight, nine people, uh, probably not not much more than that. But so what, what we did also, uh, and the book builds on uh, ideas that some of them have been around for quite long, but no one was putting them into the perspective of... Um, really team organization, team team structures. And so the idea of cognitive load is comes from psychology field, right? So um, uh, someone called John Sweller um, defined cognitive load in the 1980s as the total amount of mental effort being used um, by a person, do, you know, doing some, some task. And so it's interesting because people working in uh, user experience, user interaction, um, tend to have this idea of cognitive load very present when they're thinking about how, how much cognitive load is it for a user, for a customer to perform some task? How do we reduce that cognitive load? You know, when you have to keep a lot of things in your mind to understand, you know, what do I need to do next? Um, how do we make that simpler? And so w what we're saying is we can also apply the idea of cognitive load at a team level. Um, because we know that there is a limit based on the capacity of you know the the the, the group of people in the team to how much they can uh, have in their in their minds, and so that has implications on the work they can do. And with software engineering in particular, teams are being you know sort of pulled in many directions. So they're being asked to do more and more. They're being asked to take care of infrastructure for their services, take care of security, um, you know, build and run. The, the the service that you own, so also the operational side. So what this is doing is increasing cognitive load of the teams to a point where often they're in, on overload, right? They're like uh, um, really like a, you know like a processor in overload, and it gets really difficult. Um, and so what we're saying with team topology is that. Actually, once we understand better what cognitive load, and then we break down cognitive load into different types of cognitive load, we can have a better chance of addressing that problem that many teams have. So there are actually three types of cognitive load. There's intrinsic, extraneous, and germane. And the reason why this, this is useful is that uh, we understand what, what does this um, relate to. So intrinsic cognitive load is, if you like, the skills that you need as a as a software engineer or as part of a software a delivery team uh, to do your your work, right? To deliver the changes to software, um, and so depending on your the languages you use, the tools, etc., you might need different uh, skill set, right? But you might be a Java programmer uh, on on a banking application, so you need to know about Java. You need to know. Um, uh, some of the frameworks you use, but also how do we then create infrastructure for the service to run on, etc. Um, so all the kind of skills, and then you have extraneous cognitive load, which is related to, if you like, the mechanics of the the delivery work and uh, obviously the the operations work as well. Um, so whenever we need to to remember to put 
the effort in our memory to remember how do I deploy this service to Kubernetes, this new version, or how do I um, create some new infrastructure? How do I access the, the test database? How do I run the acceptance test? All these things that take up mental effort um, will are, are sort of extraneous cognitive load. And then finally, we have germane cognitive load where we say everything that's related to the actual problem space so what are we trying to do? Are we trying to, I don't know, allow um, um, to, to customers to do uh, monthly transfers in an easier way or whatever it is, the, the problem we're trying to solve or the feature we're trying to build for our customers, that's all the germane part, right? That's why we're actually adding value to, um, to the organization, to the customers. And so when we understand these different types of cognitive load, it becomes clear how can we help reduce the overall cognitive load is by minimizing intrinsic cognitive load where you might have uh, pair programming, mob programming, uh, internal kind of training sessions, tra uh, traditional um, training, etc. All those things can help reduce, basically help upskill people and reduce the, the, the intrinsic cognitive load if they have some gaps in the, in the in the things that they need to do on a daily basis. And then we want to reduce extraneous cognitive load as well. Um, and that's where one of the key things will be um, sort of offloading some of that extraneous cognitive load to maybe a platform that provides useful services for us to do things like uh, provisioning, like uh, deployment pipelines, uh, monitoring, et cetera where we, we're not asking every team to do that by themselves and set up the whole stack and, and learn about all the, the different tools. If we understand what are the needs of this, the teams, then maybe we, we have a better chance of having creating some good platform services that address their needs, not just some generic services that, well, everyone can use, but actually what specifically do we need for our teams? Um, and so if we minimize then the extraneous intrinsic cognitive load, that means we should ha end up with more uh, capacity for Germain to actually focus on, on the customer needs. Yeah, I think, you know, balancing, uh, balancing that or, or, or making it right is, is really tricky. So I once, I once worked with a customer and they said, Oh, we want now DevOps and we want self organizing teams. And then they, they, they thought about, you know, what are we doing? And it was, it, it even was something like, do we buy our own licenses for software and stuff like that? And it was like, nah, maybe not. Uh, maybe you need someone who negotiates uh, the price for you. You know, no developer should negotiate a price with uh, with uh, some uh, tool vendor. So you, yeah, the, it, it's it's hard to to find the balance. How, yeah, how, how do I know if I if I have too much cognitive load? How do I measure it? Um, yeah, we we. Um... We have some some free tools and, and templates on GitHub on GitHub.com/slash/team-topologies. Well, one of them is uh, cognitive load assessment, but it's it's just an example, right? Because uh, when we're talking specifically about germane cognitive load, uh, this will be different depending on which uh, industry and which context you're working on. But 
um, in terms of software engineering, there are some common things. You know, we talk about build and run teams. We talk about DevOps. Uh, we know that we're what we're asking teams if we want them to go faster, to be more a bit more autonomous. Maybe it's too strong, but uh, more uh, self-sufficient. Um, is to understand, you know, the different aspects of, of the lifecycle, right? We want to reduce those handovers between functional areas. So we want teams to know about development, obviously, uh, design, testing, infrastructure, security, operations, etc. Um, so because we're asking all these things from the teams, we we need to um, find out how do we how how is this manageable and like I mentioned, we can have can have a platform. Uh, you can have um, even just the the idea of a platform. Even if you don't have a dedicated platform team, just defining what is your platform. This could be even a wiki page where you say, um, you know, we use this AWS services. This is a kind of default um, setup that is it works well for this situation. So you can help other teams even just with this kind of simple kind of a curated experience of how should we use the AWS services? Because if you just put it in front of a team and say, well, now you're using public cloud and just, you know, find out what you need to do, that's your cognitive load sort of explodes. Um, so there is a sort of subjective measurement, which is people feel overwhelmed. They feel like we're just running after things and we'd never have time to stop and think how to do this better. That's one kind of, um, uh, more kind of intuitive way to see and, and most teams and the reason why so many people, even, you know, um, people who are not deciding on, on team structures, who are individual contributors uh, relate to the book is because we talk about this problem of cognitive load and they feel that they feel like we're being asked to do so much at the same time, there's pressure to deliver features faster. And, you know, how do we manage this? Um, but you can do, like I said, that sort of cognitive load assessment. So you have an example on GitHub where um, basically asking questions from the team members around how, what is the experience, the engineering experience of testing, of deploying, of uh, building, of uh, fixing problems in production, of finding, you know, diagnosing problems, all those things that are common to most build and run teams, then we can ask the teams, how, how does it feel? Is it easy? Is it difficult? And so we start basically to have a conversation. At the end of the day, the important thing is to have a conversation about, is our cognitive load too high? What are the areas where we're really struggling? Maybe deployments are very painful. Maybe it takes a week or two to do a deployment. Then definitely looks like that's where we should invest and maybe have a better approach to deployment. Let's take some time to um, automate some things, to uh, understand better how to do continuous delivery um, properly, etc. Um, so that that's where I, I would start. We we are also working on having a sort of more detailed assessment for cognitive load. So we're, we're working with people who with a psychology background as well. So hopefully next year we will have more of a not just an assessment example, but more of a, a, a simple tool that can help teams kind of um, get a, a better insight on where they are. But I would recommend. Uh, even inside a team, you can do this sort of exercise, even if there's no yeah. sort of um, management involved or anyone kind of looking at multiple teams inside your team. You could you could start um, discussing these things. 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, we we put the we put also we put every link uh, in the show notes. Um, we used uh, your um, your questionnaire in two different ways. So one with the big teams that we just send out a, a, like a Google form or something yeah. like that. But also we we made like one-on-one uh, in, -one interviews with uh, people to really understand where nice. they are where they are struggling with. And um, yeah, I mean, and then the question is. Once we understand where teams are struggling, what are we doing then, yeah. right? And I think, you know, it, it, in a sense, it's it, it's kind of obvious. But as we said in the beginning, nobody ever uh, worked worked it out, so to speak. Um, you came up with uh, four different team topologies um, or four fundamental team topologies. Uh, yeah, could you please, um, yeah, uh, ex uh, yeah, explain all of them in a, in a brief uh, way? I'll try. <laughs> uh, so, so just as context, the, the four types of teams that we, we came up with are based on our own experience, me and, and Matthew Skelton, who, who co-wrote the book, um, helping clients, usually they were asking for help around DevOps and continuous delivery. Um, and then, you know, figuring out that actually there was very little kind of um, clarity on what types of teams exist, what are their, what is their purpose? It was, it's more like groups of people doing work. And then somehow we expect this to, to magically come together. Um, and so having clarity on what is what it, what is the type of team uh, who are the customers of this team are they the end customers are they internal customers in the organization um what are the expected behaviors from this type of team are we kind of uh expected to have ownership of a service or build and run a service or are we expected to provide more kind of a support role to other teams a teaching role so um, the four team types come come from there, having more clarity on how the different teams relate to each other and help each other as a sort of a um, organism, if you like, that is evolving and improving the 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 the, the way the organization works, but also uh, being able to deliver a value faster for the organization. And so, specifically, the we start with streamlined teams. So you could you could say these are sort of build and run teams. Uh, but we're also saying they should be aligned to a stream of work. So we need to identify what are the sort of streams of work that are more or less decoupled as much as possible. So um, obviously this goes back to the idea of, of identifying your value streams. But then even within the value stream, you can have you can have multiple products, you can have multiple streams within a product. So it's it's uh, at, at a more kind of fine grained level. You might have a, a team that is that's focused on a specific user persona, right? Um, for example, if you have an uh, accounting software, probably uh, a large enterprise is a different persona from an um, individual freelance uh, customer, right? So it might make sense that your streams are aligned to those user personas. But there are, there are different ways that we can think about um, different streams. But effectively, we're trying to get to um, a service or a, or a software that one team can own the end-to-end -end life cycle, that they can understand the customers, they can 
do discovery also what do these customers of this stream need and they can then build test deploy and run this service or or, or software with part of, of a larger uh, product um more or less independently it's not like there's no no dependencies but we're trying sort of loosely coupled uh, approach to teams just like we try to do with with um, services in, in software. Um, yeah. So, so something like the two pizza teams. Yeah. So that's basically the uh, yeah. sort of that that kind of uh, of size of team. So usually between seven nine people can be less, can be can be more. But to really have a gel team that has a high degree of trust inside the team, um, you you need to kind of keep it to within that, that sort of boundary. So we start with stream aligned teams. Ideally, we'll be able to identify what are different value streams, different products, and different streams that we can then align P, uh, the, the, the teams to. But like we were saying before, the cognitive load for these teams, if we didn't have any other types of teams, is very high. And then you get into those problems where how do we handle all this, everything that's being asked from us and deliver features and learn about all this other stuff. And that's where we then have the, the other types of teams. We have platform teams where we're talking about platform as more of an experience, not necessarily as much focused on services and tools. Yes, there will be. But how does the platform experience, the usage, uh, helps the teams reduce cognitive load? Because if you provide a platform service that is very cumbersome, that it's difficult to understand or the API doesn't work as we expected or um, it's off, the service is often unavailable or in maintenance, then this is not really helping the teams that much, right? There, this becomes more of a, a, a problem. Now we have to use this platform service, which is complicated to understand. So the starting point for platform teams, as described in Team Topologies, is to reduce cognitive load, is to provide a very high level of uh, developer experience in the platform and user experience. Um, so we, if we do that, we start to be able to offload some of that extraneous cognitive load into the platform. And the, the nice thing is then for the platform teams, this becomes their germane cognitive load, right? Because they we're working on uh, uh, what helps our internal customers, right? So you might have platform teams around um, continuous delivery or around infrastructure things like this, but they're they're helping the internal teams, the streamlined teams um, reduce their, their load. Um, and then a third type of team are enabling teams. So these are usually, um, again, from our consulting experience, what we saw is that many teams usually in organization have similar gaps. So it might be that they don't, uh, they don't know uh, how to do test automation in, in, a, in an effective way, or they don't know how to do continuous integration, or they don't know um, about user experience. It can be any sort of domain. So, and often organizations struggle to meet those needs of those teams because they cannot hire a user experience expert for every team. They cannot hire a test automation expert for every team. So instead of relying on hiring, we should rely on internally on enabling teams, ideally, where maybe we bring two or three experts and the way they work is facilitate and mentor the other teams. They teach through uh, pairings, through, through um, workshops, through some, you know, could be video-based training, can be anything that helps our internal teams gain the skills that they need in, in a certain domain. Um, 
And at the same time, the enabling teams are in a good position to identify what could be useful platform features or services for those streamlined teams. So we start to have this sort of ecosystem, if you like, of different types of teams that understand well what is their their um, their purpose and how they're helping the overall organization, the team of teams, if you like, uh, become become better. And we have a fourth type of team that we we actually don't recommend. So it, it sounds weird, but it's complicated subsystem. Um, there are some situations where a very kind of um, niche usually and um, very high demanding type of subsystem, for example, could be, you know, face recognition or uh, real-time financial trading, where you have very complicated algorithms or technology where you do need a team to be um, owning that subsystem, even though that's not directly used by the customers. It's maybe part of, 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 of another stream. But it would be too much to ask a streamlined team with everything we talked about already and now and tell them, oh, also you have to own this face recognition module in your in your service. Um, because it's these things tend to require kind of PhD level type of understanding. Um, so it's 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 sort of um, something we 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 have to rely on because of the cognitive load. But if we can avoid them, it's better. So we're not saying create complicated subsystem around DevOps or co create a complicated subsystem around Kubernetes. No, those probably should be uh, aligning to platform type of teams, probably that that the, the ones that that are uh, going to use that technology. Um, so it's complicated subsystem is a, a team that builds and runs a subsystem that uh, requires um, very uh, niche sort of of knowledge where you can't really find people easily that, that know that. So those are the four team types. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So now we, we eventually have a vocabulary. I, you know, I found that quite uh, helpful to when, when we yeah. talk about teams that we really have this uh, vocabulary, uh, who is doing, um, who is doing what, but nevertheless, so for example, when or I'm working quite often in an enabling team. And the problem, of course, with enabling teams is, at least in my experience, is uh, how do you avoid becoming an ivory tower? Or let's say maybe not, I mean, that's one thing. How do I avoid being an ivory tower? And the, the second thing is being really helpful. So, you know, um, that's, you, you can often help a little bit, but, um, like you, you can have a teaching session, but maybe like, a, like a workshop is not enough. You really have to closely work, uh, work with the, with the team. That's, that's the kind of two struggles, uh, uh, I see. Yeah. So how do I avoid, uh, those? Yeah, th those are, are good points. There's also another one, if I may add, where the enabling team, uh, we don't want that to become a dependency in terms of the, the execution of the work of the streamlined teams, right? So uh, we don't want enabling team that, well, every time we need to, um, let's say, uh, make a new, do a new infrastructure for application, we need to ask the enabling team. That That's not the kind of enabling work we're talking about. But um, so yes, you need to find what is the, the good way. So in, in terms of how much we need to help the teams, 
actually what's better is to do a sort of um, what well, we, we said in the book to orbit around the teams. So that means um, we're not expecting an enabling team, let's say around test automation, just to make it more concrete. Let's say you have a streamlined team that they really don't have experience with test automation and the enabling team is gonna help them. You don't expect that this team is going to learn everything about test automation in a few weeks. We can try to teach everything as an enabling team. Probably they will remember 10% and be able to apply 10, 20%. That's absolutely normal. So that's not very effective. It's much more effective, and that's where the enabling teams become powerful, is to meet the team where they are now. So if we know this team has you know, very little knowledge, let's start with the basics. How you know what are some test automation tools? Why should you work with maybe higher level scenarios, not with very detailed um, actions in the user interface? This kind of things, you know, the basics of what makes a good good automated test, etc. Let's not try to teach them everything. Maybe let's have a couple of weeks. We help them. We we teach. We maybe pair on some examples, and then we come back maybe in a in a couple of months and see where they are. Have you been able to? you know, apply these ideas to your work, everyday work, and how is it going? And then at some point they'll get into other challenges, maybe because now they have too many tests and they take too long to run in the pipeline. And so we need to think about, you know, making tests more independent and, and um, more performant and et cetera. So the enabling team, especially if it's a domain where teams need quite a lot of help, should try to help um, by, you know, piece by piece understand this team is here now they need this help and so and in in 3 months they need they need help with with the next step and that's one of the main differences also from what people ask us about is this a sort of um um center of excellence type of approach um and and the ivory tower type of approach so it's it's very much an enabling team is on the ground right is understanding what does this team need where are they now how can we help them it's not from a sort of ivory tower that you were talking about of saying, well, these are the good practices that everyone should follow. And this, you should have this type of architecture and you should all be doing infrastructure as code. That I'm not saying that's not helpful, but teams are already overloaded. How, how are they going to be expected to just take guidelines and then learn how, uh, how this, uh, what, how did this changes their work and, and so on. So it's, it's a very much, um, hands-on approach without becoming a dependency. So we're teaching together and uh, with the other team, and we're helping the other team, but also we're not doing the work for them, right? We're not doing the the delivery work for them. We're helping them learn and and, and improve their their knowledge. But I agree, it's not it's not um, it's not easy to find that right balance. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, I, I think one one experience I made, which was really good, is really uh, yeah, talk to them as you said, right? So not not come up with you know here is something, throw it over the wall, but really uh, uh, try to understand, really try to understand the the problem level of each team, yeah. because if if you just say here is something. Uh, uh, everyone's like, uh, I, li I like okay, the, you know, because I have three small kids and I like the analogy with the oldest is six, uh, is going to be seven. The analogy with trying to help him uh, with his homework, right? If he has a problem, you know, how much is 
7 plus 6, of course I can tell him it's 13 and write it down, but that's not going to help him, right, for the next time he has another another uh, uh, homework. And so it's not easy because it's so obvious for us, in this case, let's say, expert, because I'm, uh, we've, we've been through it, uh, to understand what is the thought process in his mind, what is the difficult for him to do that calculation. And so you have to start digging to, you know, do you know how to add these two numbers? How do you do it in your mind? You have to understand where the other person or the other team is. And that's what ivory towers usually don't do. They just kind of uh, expect everyone to be every team to be the same. They just need to adopt these practices, and in reality, it's it's not so easy. Yeah. The another thing I found, uh, let's say, interesting was if there are a lot of enabling teams, because let's say, yeah, as you said, we we are overloaded. If you're a stream aligned two pizza team, you have a lot of thing, a lot of things on your plate. And, um, for example, I helped once a team with a performance and capacity testing and they were, they were really far, right? So they, you know, automated <laughs> performance testing with each, uh, you know, on a nightly basis and stuff like that. And then it turned out that in a lot of other areas, for example, normal test automation, like, uh, integration tests or something like that or security. They basically were at zero. They had, you know, they were not so much interested in it and they just blocked uh, the other enabling teams. And then we were like, okay, so we basically, we need an overall understanding also what the team really needs. Does it need a lot of security? Does it need a lot of this? Does it need a lot of that? Because some, at, at some point, an enabling team also needs to, to stop and say, okay, we are, we could be way better, but. There is other, there is still other things, other areas where you need to improve. Yeah. And that's, um, on one hand, it's, it's kind of natural that the team kind of, uh, relies more on the things they know. So in that, in that example, we know about how to do performance testing. So we focus more on that. Um, and so. That's why it's, first of all, important to understand the cognitive load aspects and, and the cognitive load might also mean we're looking at areas where we're, we're not doing things because we don't have the skills, right? We're not doing integration testing, uh, because we don't have the, the knowledge or, um, something else. So we want to improve across those different domains. Um, I would say. There's also the other extreme, if you like, because I'm remembering a, a, a thread from Twitter yesterday where some organizations, because they're taking literally this idea of cross-functional teams to mean, well, now we need teams to have one UX expert, one test automation, maybe you know, one performance tester, uh, and they're ending up with teams of 15 people, which that's not the point as well. So to your, to, to your point, um, what we need is first understand teams are different. Some teams will have gaps in testing. Others will have gaps in architecture, et cetera. So if we try to treat teams all the same, that's not going to work very well. We need to understand different teams have different gaps and then try to, to help them, you know, step by step. We're not saying they're all going to become experts at everything. But they, you need to identify the gaps, like in your example, this team has a gap in integration testing. 
is this a gap that exists across several teams? So maybe it makes sense to have an enabling team. Or if it's just this one individual team, then how can we address it? Do we, maybe we can think about hiring someone that will help the team um, go faster, or maybe we just do some facilitating work with um, someone else from a stream, another streamlined team where they've done good integration testing uh, approaches. So there, there are different ways we can think about uh, reducing the gaps. Um, in fact, enabling teams are, in my experience so far after the book was published, one of the types of teams that generate more kind of doubts um, and some organizations are not don't have clarity on why should we invest in an enabling team. And it's fine not to create an enabling team to start with. So in the book, we also talk about interaction modes. So you can have people who maybe are in other streamlined teams um, help another team by doing this facilitating, by spending maybe two weeks or uh, one day per week for a couple of months, whatever it makes sense, to help the other team learn about this domain. Um, and that's what we call facilitating. So you can start with one team, maybe sometimes platform teams do some enabling as well because they are experts in, for example, infrastructure automation. So they can help the streamlined teams not just use the platform, but also understand what are the, the good practices and uh, around infrastructure automation, for example. So it's hmm. really about having sort of the mindset of, we need to address gaps in teams. We need to find a way to upskill that is not just relying on people to, I don't know, learning learn in their free time. That's not uh, scalable. Um, and then find out what makes sense for different gaps. Is it we need enabling team or we just need some help, uh, some facilitation from another uh, streamlined team, or we need the help from platform team, etc. So there are different ways we can go about it. And if there is sort of um, lack of certainty if we need to create an enabling team that, that doesn't necessarily need to be a dedicated team, it can be um, just some facilitation happening to start with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned now uh, platforms uh, and platform team. So it, it seems each and every company has uh, a platform team, but uh, it's not really, it, it's not in every case clear how, a, what is this platform team doing? Is it just providing raw infrastructure and is creating accounts and stuff like that and maintaining Kubernetes or something like that? Um, so what's, what does an, a, a platform team do? So what, what's the, the, the purpose? So, right. If you, when you, we often see those kind of, um, platform teams, obviously platform is overloaded term. Um, but if we're talking about having teams with that are more self-sufficient, the streamlined teams that can deliver more independently, then we don't want dependencies during the execution of the work. You don't want them to depend on another team to provision infrastructure for them or to open a, a firewall, a port on a firewall, or to do these kind of things, this type of request-based work. So a platform team in team topology is not a team that's responding to requests or doing things on behalf of other teams or um, maintaining the operational side of, of the services. Um, what they're doing is treating the platform as a product. So this idea of 
we're providing a product in the form of, of platform services to our internal teams who are the customers. And so they should be able to use this product to make their life easier, just like we use any any, any kind of product to, to help uh, make our life easier um, without depending directly on the platform team in terms of the execution work, because then we're just having more dependencies. And then we have all the problems of the platform team that's responding to requests has to prioritize and you have all these this conflicts happening that teams are waiting for other teams. So that's what we want to move away from if we want fast flow. And so the, the platform as a product idea is really, um, again, it's, it's not new, has been around for, for quite a long time. People from um, uh, Pivotal Labs have talked about it and Red Hat, etc. And so it's platform provided in a way that has a very high user experience, a very easy experience, and um, addresses the needs of the internal teams, but it's not a blocking dependency. It's not that we're waiting on a platform team to do things for us. And so we go back also to the enabling teams. Maybe uh, before a team can use a platform, they need to understand more about infrastructure. They need to understand more about uh, deployments, but the platform service also helps them do that uh, without with less cognitive load. Yeah, I mean, if you say it should be a product, when I read it, I was like, ah, yeah, um, but this is this is really hard, I believe. You know, you you have you you have a product, you have internal customers. It needs you need a product manager. You you need probably service support and everything. So you need to think about all that. You have to. I think Nikki, what she once talked uh, about, you you have a community effort. Yeah. You know, saying, uh, I, you know, I have to go to, I, I'm not, again, ivory tower. I'm not thinking about what could be of use. I really have a product manager, an internal one, talking to my internal customers, coming up with, let's say, uh, a roadmap or something like that, and uh, validating the roadmap with all the internal customers, implementing something. So yeah, I, I think it's really hard, but it's probably the only necessary, uh, the only it's the, the the only thing which which will probably work, right? Yeah. So if so, otherwise fail. By the way, uh, Nikki Watts has a um, a great the talk that you you mentioned about um, platform focusing on on the community that that they serve, um, and actually when I was uh, still working as DevOps lead at InfoQ, one of the last articles that I. Um, sort of curated was from her based on that talk. So I, I recommend that and then we can add it in the, the, in the show notes. Um, so yes, one of the main difficulties for this type of platform teams is lack of product um, management approach. Um, it's not very easy to find uh, product people who understand kind of the technical um, details of this type of, of of platforms usually, uh, but it's 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 critical. So we often recommend customers to, you know, don't don't put um, junior <clears throat> product manager in the platform. You need probably your best, more experienced product managers in the platform because they they will be um, uh, critical to make it uh, a success. Um, and so obviously in the book we could we couldn't expand too much, but now we have. We're just about to to release a, um, a video-based training called "Platform as a Product," 
on our Team Topologies Academy, which is really is possibly the first of, of maybe uh, other other uh, courses around platform uh, teams. But the first thing is applying product thinking to the platform, right? So you need to understand there are different types of customers inside your organization. You need to understand the adoption lifecycle of your product. So not everyone's going to jump when on your first version of your of your service in the platform. You need to understand what's going to create friction to other teams to adopt. Um, so it's it's like you said, you need strong product management to make it work. But you also need to be careful not to go into kind of too far where you, where you, I've also seen platform teams that have this huge roadmap and then they're saying, and then uh, a streamlined team comes to them and says, well, we need help with this. Um, and they say, well, we, we're busy for the next six months. Then you're not really focusing on the customers, are you? So we need to be careful. There are some, some smells like that. If you, if you can't have a conversation with streamlined teams because you're too busy, as a platform team, then you're doing something wrong. If your roadmap is for six months or a year and there's no flexibility to, to kind of change course, then something wrong as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean we, we also put the we put all the links on the show notes also for, for your for your courses. Um and I think I will uh, visit <laughs> that one because I have uh, so many questions. Uh, maybe one last question on on the on the on the platform. So I always think you know platform is something like it's X as a service. You know I have self service. Is that is that true that a, that a platform is always self service? Yes and no. So that that's probably that's kind of the target um, way of 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 working of the platform, right? So when you get the platform service let's say per service to a level where you know it's easy to use it's easy to understand for people who are new to the service you have adequate documentation um, basically the things you expect from any aws service right or which is not at least the ones that are not in beta anymore <laughs> that that you can um that are available on our google cloud or any of these um, big providers your expectation is to consume it in this access as a service way, right? I will be able to self-serve. I will be able to understand how it works, to look at examples and, and to use it without actually talking to an AWS engineer. So that's, that's the, the target. But then there's also another interaction that needs to happen, which is collaboration between platform and streamline teams. Because when there are new needs that arise and streamline team says, or maybe enabling team tells the platform team looks like it would be useful to, there's a, a gap here that I th we think the platform could help with, with some functionality or some API. Um, the platform team needs to collaborate with, with their customer who are the streamlined teams uh, very much in ag agile way, right? And get fast feedback and maybe do a prototype before they just go and, and you know take a requirement and spend three months and then come back and is this what you need? Oh, no, actually that's, we, we misunderstood each other. So we don't want that to happen in platform. You want uh, the platform teams actually working in a similar way towards their customers as the streamlined teams. So the platform actually ends up being a group of teams where they're mostly, especially if the platform grows, you tend to have kind of different services or streams inside the platform itself. 
It's almost like a, hmm. a Russian doll, right? So you also have streamlined teams inside the platform where we might have a, a team that's aligned to the continuous delivery service, another team aligned to the provisioning service, or you know whatever it might be. It can also be more kind of yeah. data level, business level uh, services as well. Yeah, observability, yeah. Uh, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But those those are the two kind of typical interaction modes for platform teams collaboration when we we need to in, make changes to a service or create a new service or add a new feature because teams are are need that um so we need to collaborate to do it iteratively to understand when is this really ready to be then consumed by other teams in in that access as wow. a service way and it's a const, constant uh, alternating between these two right you might have a service that's pretty stable easy to use, but now we have a new feature. So now we go into collaboration mode again. And, and then well, mm. at least for that feature, we need to understand that there's this cycles, this feedback uh, that we need to get until it's it's usable again. And then we say, okay, it's X as a service. And there are ways to kind of um, self-monitor, if you like, how much X as a service it is. If you say this feature or this service is generally available in, internally, and then you start getting a lot of support requests and people don't understand how to use it or they get a lot of errors, then, well, pro we probably were kind of um, too early to to make it access a service. We need to go back and understand better what's, yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's also very hard to come up with X as a service all the time, you know, when I think about platform, you know, you, someone, we are using Kubernetes, but now someone wants to use AWS Lambda. Uh, and, you know, if they say, oh, we want to use it and you say, okay, I built you something, then it takes forever until you can use it. So probably it's easier to do it stepwise and say, okay, we, you know, we, we really speed you up. You know, you, we help you to understand everything. Then we try and, during that collaboration, we we try to find out if there is a need to to automate something, you know, to offer something as a service, and if not, then not. And yeah, and then uh, yeah, if if you have a service that you come back, yeah, what you say, yeah, yeah. If, if there are too many support tickets, uh, work on it. The platform teams need to first; they need to listen to the streamline teams, and they need to prioritize. Obviously, but prioritization is based on the needs; it's not based on oh. Everyone's using Kubernetes now. We need to use it too. Is is there an actual need or or AWS Lambda? Um, and if there's a streamlined team that comes with that request, it needs to be the thing is first we we listen, we try to understand why do they need it, um, and then but it needs to be prioritized. Again, we need very good product management to be able to do that across. You know, if the platform is successful, you'll get many many requests from many teams, um, and so. Sometimes another pattern might be that the streamlined team that thinks they need this different tool or this different approach, um, they should have the, the the option to do it by themselves, where they are incurring the cost because they believe it's going to bring value. Okay, then we should not stop that. We should not say, oh, no, that's something that only the platform team can do because it's related to infrastructure. No, you can have streamlined teams that are sort of pioneering, if you like, some new approaches. And that makes total sense. It doesn't make sense that the platform team is is going to do a lot of, try out a lot of different new tools just because people in other teams think 
um, you know, heard about it. That's not the point of the platform team. They should be helping with specific needs based on the work the teams are doing um, today. Um, but yes, it's an exercise of treating the platform as a product, prioritizing and listening to customers, but also not stopping yeah. streamlined teams from taking initiative and, and doing, um, you know, pioneering on things that they are the first ones to have that need or that request. Um, I, I had one example where um, a, um, a client where they, they work on, they have, you know, classified ads across different industries. And so they're mostly organized the teams across uh, different industries. Um, and one of the teams needed to, was the first one that wanted to have videos in the ads, right? Um, and so you would expect, okay, usually this might make sense as part of a platform to provide support for video processing. Um, but it doesn't make sense now to ask a platform team to do this for one team. So that, that streamline mm. team should take the, the initiative and they, they, they do this for their own needs. And then later, maybe other teams will need it. And then we'll see how we sort of, um, commoditize, if you like, between codes, this by, by having it in the platform. So many other teams can use it. So at the end of the day, it's finding better ways to achieve and, and do the things we need to do without that sort of um, very strict boundaries between saying, you know, this, this is only the platform team that can do this. Well, okay. All right. So uh, we are almost uh, at an end. Um, you, you already mentioned the interaction modes and you basically explained them, but maybe it's a good idea to, to wrap it up a little yeah. bit. You know, what, what interaction modes exist and for what are they, for what should they uh, yeah. use? So there are three. So we've talked about them. Uh, the first is collaboration, but in the sense of being much more uh, well-defined. So it's not just open-ended collaboration. So sometimes teams say, well, yeah, we collaborate with that other team. But what they really mean is they have a relationship with that other team. Sometimes they work together. Uh, we're, we're defining collaboration as two teams working together for a, a, a specific period of time with a specific goal. You know, maybe it's, we need to, uh, find a way to automate the deployment. So we don't depend on the other team to do the, the deployments for us. Um, uh, but it can be anything. So it's collaboration to solve a specific problem. Um, then we have um, facilitating, which I mentioned is typical for enabling teams, but it could also happen between streamlined teams. You could happen between streamlined teams and platform teams. Um, wherever you have one team that has expertise in some domain where another team needs help. So we can do facilitation uh, where Again, for a defined period of time, which, you know, can change, but we set expectations that this is not an open-ended interaction is we expect this to take two weeks so that you, you, you teach us the basics about test automation, for example. Um, so again, we facilitate one team teaches the other, but it should also be open to learn because we're not, there's no, I think to me, absolute experts, even if we're, who spent a lot of years in, in certain domain, there's always something that, uh, or some problem that people can tell us that we did, hadn't thought about. Um, but basically facilitating is that. And then we have access a service, what we were just talking about for the for typical for the platform, where you, you provide a service that other teams consume. You don't actually need the teams to interact. 
because the service is of um, good enough quality, reliability, usability, so that other teams can use it uh, independently. So those are the three ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so now one last short question and um, to, to, to really wrap it up. Um, if I'm now a small organization, like a startup or something, um, what, what can I adopt? You know, a startup probably doesn't have a platform team, doesn't has, uh, you know, the, the money for, uh, for enabling teams. But what can I do if I work in a, in a, in a small organization? Yeah, that, that's a good question that people often ask, you know, uh, from what size do I need to worry about team topologies from, from what size of the organization? Um, Effectively, and, and um, you can look at the ideas in team topologies at any size, right? The difference might be in the topologies that you that you find. So if we only have two teams, then we're definitely not going to be able to have enabling platform and streamlined teams, right? There's already three. Um, but we can think about the idea. So we can think about enabling and facilitating between, you know, if we have two teams, maybe one is, has been around longer, has more experience around the product, and they know how do we, how do we uh, change the product, what has worked well, why were some decisions made on the architecture. Probably they will be in a good place to facilitate knowledge to a more junior team, maybe that you've created to kind of address new, new customers or whatever it, it might need, might be. So the idea of, of enabling can happen even without a dedicated enabling team. And the same for platform. Um, like we said earlier, a platform could be even just a wiki page where you're documenting, you know, these are some good approaches to use these services. Um, this has helped us kind of accelerate and not have every team uh, think about, well, how do I set up my infrastructure? Well, oh, they have here uh, some recommendations. Use uh, Lambda for this type of jobs. Use use uh, other services for, for other, other uh, type of work. Um, so the ideas can take place. Um, and then finally, the other thing that is quite relevant, I think, for startups and scale-ups is to think about the trust boundaries that we talk about um, in the book and, and, and a bit more in, in our uh, academy training, where uh, the work of, of Robin Dunbar is quite interesting. So people might be familiar with Dunbar's number, which says 150, it's actually between 100, 200 um, people is, is the number that we can keep meaningful interactions with as an individual, right? So that we know who these people are and what they do and how we relate to them. And that's also useful in the workplace, but there are other trust boundaries at smaller scale. So when you go beyond 30, 40, 50 people, which tends to be when startups start to scale up, um, the dynamics change. You start having more teams, you start having less kind of shared knowledge across all teams because, you know, the work increases. Um, and so what worked in the beginning with 15, 20, 30 people might not work with as well with 40, 50, 60. And so understanding the trust boundaries can be quite important because that means we need to look at different ways of doing, you know, enabling of do we need now a platform team? You know, we need to look into at, at how things change when we cross different trust boundaries. Um, and other things like Conway's law that we talk about in, in team topologies, basically all of that um, is meaningful. Maybe the way that you implement is is different. 
All right. Thank you very much. Um, so obviously we only had one hour, but so many questions. Where can our listeners uh, find more answers, more information? What, what, what's, what's your recommendation? Sure. We have our main website, teamtopologies.com, where you can find you know, key concepts, free resources. We have a, a number of, of public talks and articles and things that people can use. We now have infographics as well which are, um, I think they're pretty cool and they're a good way to share the, the main ideas with other people who maybe are not as uh, familiar with team topologies. Um, and then we have uh, started a team topologies academy. So these are video-based training. So we have, for example, a three-hour self-paced course on the kind of key ideas of team topologies. Um, and we're about to publish the, that other course I mentioned on platform as a product. Um, where we're, it's kind of obviously specific for everyone working with, with internal platforms. Um, and there would mm. more, there's more to come. I'm quite excited about it because we also want to bring in other people who have expertise, uh, for example, with team topologies and worldly mapping or team topologies and domain driven design, because there's a lot of mm. overlap okay. and yeah. team topologies provides kind of the team design and organizational aspects and those kind of other, um, approaches provide other uh, other things that combine quite well um so i would say those two teamtopologies.com and the uh, academy.teamtopologies.com and we have those github repositories that are uh, freely uh, accessible um creative commons um which you can find on github.com/teamtopologies and of course we're on social media and if you look for team topologies you'll find on twitter linkedin etc Okay, awesome. Very nice. So thank you very much, uh, Manuel. And thank you to all of our listeners.